Amen. We are forgiven at the cross. Well, if you would remain standing, we're continuing our series through John's gospel. And now the scene shifts from up north in Galilee down to Jerusalem. And again, we're going to see the compassionate heart of our Lord Jesus. But we're also going to see some conflict as he heals a man on a day that the religious leaders do not like. So let's turn to John chapter 5, if you would, or look up on the screens. I'll be reading through verse 18, 1 to 18. Hear the word of the Lord for us this morning. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me in the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath. It's not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. They asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn and as there was a crowd in that place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. This is the word of the Lord. You may sit down and let's pray together as we seek to understand and apply God's word. Father in heaven. We ask that you might exalt your name among us today, that we might see Jesus in a fresh way, that we might see his heart and be changed, that we might give our lives to him in a new way. So Lord, open up our minds to understand your word. We know that you speak through it, so give us ears to hear. We pray that in Christ's name, amen. Well, trying to fix a problem with a wrong solution can be quite dangerous. I found this out just last December as my family and I were on a road trip. It's pretty cold. We were going down central Illinois. And I noticed, well, I heard something in the back of our van. 
as the eight of us were traveling down central Illinois there. And so I thought, you know, I don't know a lot about cars, but I know it's not a good sound. So I pulled on over, and sure enough, our bumper was dragging along the road as we drove down. thought, well, that's not good. And so thankfully, there was a gas station close by. And at that gas station, they had some duct tape and they had some twisty ties, those plastic twisty ties. But apparently, the duct tape that we bought wasn't so good because it didn't adhere to our bumper on the car very well. And so uh, that, was, that was not great. And these twisty ties apparently were not designed to have your bumper adhered to the rest of your car going 65 miles down the freeway. Mine was surely a faulty solution to this problem. And I'm sure you can think of examples of your, in your own life. Hopefully you haven't had that happen where your bumper kind of falls off. But you have tried to fix a problem in your life with a faulty solution. The ideas may seem good at the time, but they don't last. Well, in today's text, in John chapter 5, we're going to be confronted with two examples of people who are trying to fix their problems with faulty religious solutions. We have a disabled man who's trying to fix his physical problems, and then we have the religious leaders who are trying to fix people's spiritual problems, but they're doing so in a faulty way. And through it all, we're going to see Jesus, once again, he's going to show us that he is the solution to our deepest needs. So to give some context, uh, verse 1, chapter 5 provides the setting for today's passage. It says this, after this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the context of John's gospel, tension has been building between Jesus and the religious leaders. You remember back in chapter 2 when Jesus entered the temple and he cleared out the marketplace. Religious leaders weren't so happy with that. Then later on, he and his disciples were baptizing in the wilderness of Judea. And the religious leaders found out that he was gaining more disciples, more influence than the great John the Baptist. They weren't so happy with that. And so this tension has been building. This impending collision and confrontation has been building on the horizon. And now we're going to see that confrontation in today's story. But it's not going to deter Jesus from his mission. And that leads big picture to the main argument of today's message, which is this. Nothing can stop Jesus from doing God's work. Nothing can stop Jesus from doing God's work. And we see that in the passage. We can observe two ways that Jesus does God's work in this text. First, we see that Jesus shows compassion to helpless sinners. That's in verses 1 to 9. And second, we see that Jesus rescues us from toxic religion. We see that in verses 10 to 18. So let's first consider how Jesus shows compassion to helpless sinners. You see, before the days of health care, before the days of hospital or these facilities where people could find help, people didn't have many options to address their physical problems. 
There were no prosthetics for those who were crippled. There was no accommodation for the blind. There's no ADA uh, Disabilities Act. There was nothing like that. There's no wheelchairs for the paralyzed. And so we read about in verse 2, the needy in Jerusalem. It says this. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool. In Aramaic called Bethesda which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. So I want you to imagine the scene. You've got this pool in Jerusalem right around the city gate on the north side. And you've got perhaps hundreds of people who are invalids, not able to help themselves. They can't see. They're paralyzed. They're lame. And they're all gathered around this one pool. Well, why would they be gathered around this pool? Well, it's because of a religious tradition. Likely, if you have your Bibles in front of you, the religious tradition is written in your footnote. Because later on, in some later manuscripts, some people put, probably the copyists, put some notes in the Bible and and it made its way into some manuscripts that said that an angel of the Lord would sometimes come down to this pool and stir up the waters... And the first one in, that person got healed. So that's why all these people are here. Whether or not that actually happened, we don't know. But apparently people thought it happened or they had heard of it happening because there was tons of people gathered around this pool. It, they, it was their only hope to find healing. There was no other solution. It's kind of like the lottery today. It's impossible, nearly, to win the big jackpot. I don't know, maybe you have, and you can talk to me afterwards. But most of us have not won the lottery. But many desperate people buy tickets to the lottery because they think, if I get, if I get the right numbers, my life is going to be changed. It's kind of like that at the pool of Bethesda. These invalids, they're thinking, okay, if I could just get in there, I'm gonna, all is going to be well. And even though it was a long shot, it provided these outcasts their only glimmer of hope for healing. And so in that context, out of this vast amount of people needing help, Jesus singles out one man. Look at the text in verse 5. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? What a curious question by Jesus. You can imagine the man, well, I'm sitting around the pool. Of course I want to be healed. Well, Jesus often asks such questions that seem obvious on its surface. But he asks these questions to get deeper into the heart of the person that he's about to heal. You'll remember in Mark when he healed blind Bartimaeus. Before he healed him, he said, what do you want me to do for you? Well, look at the man's response here in verse 7 in our text. The sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me in the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going... Another steps down before me. So here we learn that the man is not only lame or paralyzed, we're not exactly sure what's wrong with him, but he's also alone. He has no one to help him get into the pool. 
He's got no friends around. He has no family members. No fellow invalid is going to help him get into this pool. He is all alone. And he thinks the only way he could be healed is by going into this magic pool. Not knowing that his best chance of getting healed is standing right in front of him. The one who has created heaven and earth is standing right in front of his eyes. Well, even though this man doesn't know who Jesus is, Jesus acts. And look what he says in verse 8. Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. Just like last week with the healing of the official son, we see that Jesus can heal just with a word. Just with a word and Jesus' healing power is on full display to heal. The man obeys and he walks. He, he rolls up his little straw mat, probably wasn't very heavy. He gets up and he walks. Can you imagine the joy this man must have felt? 38 years he had been an invalid. Likely not from birth or else John would have said that. So at some point in his life he became lame or paralyzed. We don't know what caused his paralysis. But for 38 years he couldn't walk on his own. He had to have other people do things for him. And now he had freedom. Now he had the ability to change his situation and his life. Well, let's think for a moment just how this story might help us better see who Jesus is. Right now, you might be in a helpless situation. I don't think we have any who are paralyzed in our congregation. But there may be some other physical ailment that you are struggling with, that you've been struggling with for decades, if not your whole life. Or some sort of emotional problem that you wish there would just be some healing on the other side because it doesn't seem to ever leave. Well, maybe today you need to be remember that reminded that all, out of all the billions of the pe people in, in this world, that Jesus sees individuals and he sees you. He knows you. He knows your situation. He knows how long you've been dealing with whatever it is. And he gets it. Maybe you need to be reminded of the compassion of Jesus today. And perhaps you need to be reminded that Jesus is able to heal whatever that ailment is. Because maybe you've lost hope. Maybe it's been 38 years for you. But lest you think this story is, a, is saying that you're going to be healed of all your ailments, which would be wrong, consider all the other invalids in this story. Nothing's mentioned about any of them being healed. Nothing's mentioned of Jesus interacting with any of them. Presumably, most if not all of them were still lying around when Jesus kind of withdrew and went to another place. One of the most famous paralytics of our time is Johnny Erickson Tata. If you remember, back in 1967, she dove into a shallow lake and broke her neck. That was over 55 years ago, and she's been living with quadriplegia. But in the midst of it, she has inspired countless millions who are also disabled in various ways. Listen to what she says about living with this condition for over 55 years. She says, he has chosen, God, not to heal me, but to hold me. 
The more intense the pain, the closer his embrace. So friend, today, if you are going through a deep burden, whether it's a physical ailment, some other problem in your life, Remember that if Jesus has chosen not to heal, we can have that confidence that he will be with us in that trial. And he gets us. We don't know the reason why he hasn't healed us or you. But we can trust him through the trial. So in this story, we see that Jesus pursues those the world has discarded. He notices those that everyone else has passed by. The weak the disabled, the troubled, the depressed. And he has compassion on the most helpless of sinners. People like you and people like me. And since Jesus has that kind of compassion, if you are a follower of Jesus, one sub-application of this text is that we too must look for those that everyone else passes by. Who are some people or people within our society that nobody else notices? I know we have some in this congregation who have a strong passion for the unborn or those who have been abused or those who society really has kind of forgotten about. Some have a real passion for the poor here at Hope Fellowship. As we seek to model our lives after Christ, we want to have his heart of compassion. Well, this miraculous healing is setting up the rest of the story, which is foreshadowed by how John ends verse 9. Look there if, you're, if you have your Bibles there at the end of verse 9. It says, now that day was the Sabbath. It's kind of like the music. You can always hear the music like, dun, dun, dun. You know, that day was the Sabbath. So that leads us to the next way that we can see how God's, uh, Jesus does God's work in this passage, and that's by rescuing us from toxic religion. Because when it comes to worshiping God, many of us just want people to tell us what to do. It's kind of like, okay, pastor, that's great. Just tell me what to do. I'll do it this week. We'll be good. Well, telling you what to do and having a series of checklists is a characteristic of religion, not a relationship with the Lord Jesus. Sure, we have things, we have commands in scripture that we have to obey, I'm not saying that. But if we're trying to live the Christian life through checklists, through to-do lists, we've missed the core of what Jesus has come to do, which is to transform our lives. And so here in these verses 10 to 18, we can observe three traits of toxic religion. The first trait of toxic religion we observe is legalism. So what is legalism? I like R.C. Sproul's definition. He says legalism involves abstracting the law of God from its original context. The legalist, he says, isolates the law of God from the God who gave the law. So legalism is on full display with the Jews' reaction to the man's healing there in verse 10. It says, so the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath, and it's not lawful for you to take up your bed. The situation is so sad that it's almost comical. These men don't seem to care that one of the greatest miracles in recent memory has happened. They don't seem to care that this man who has been an invalid for 38 years is now healed. He's walking around. 
They're worried that this man is breaking a finer point of God's law. And that he's apparently breaking a finer point of God's law. I say apparently because it's not clear that he's actually breaking the Sabbath. Sure, we've heard of the fourth commandment of the Ten Commandments. Keep the Sabbath day holy. Do no work on the Sabbath. Jeremiah 17 says that we should not, uh, the people back then, should not bear a burden on the Sabbath or do any work. But this man carrying a light straw mat is not exactly bearing a burden. And this was not his work. This was not his vocation to carry a light straw mat. So he was not technically breaking the Sabbath, even by the letter of the law. But this is the key point. The man was breaking the law of the religious leaders. He was breaking their religious tradition. You see, the religious leaders at this time had come up with rules of their own. The the rabbis of that time, they had come up with 39 ways that you were not allowed to work. Kind of like 39 categories of work. You can't do this. And the 39th of those, uh, according to Andreas Kostenberger, scholar, was the carrying of an object from one domain to another. So the man was not breaking God's law from God's word, but he was breaking man's law from a religious tradition. And friends, that's a key characteristic of legalism. It takes a potential application from God's word, and it proclaims that as the standard for everyone. What could that look like today? What could legalism look like today in the Christian world? Well, legalism could look like in saying, you have to dress a certain way to be part of our community. You have to drink certain things, or actually not drink certain beverages to be part of our community. Legalism looks like saying, you can't watch any TV or any media consumption. Now, some people may choose that out of wisdom, but legalism says everyone has to do that. And the list could go on and on. It could be uh, being told you have to give a certain amount of money to the church in order to be a faithful Christian. Well, legalistic practices generally start out as a way to apply God's word. And there could be some wisdom when it starts out. But over time, these practices become a standard in themselves. And friends, legalism is toxic because it suffocates the grace of the gospel. It suffocates what Jesus Christ has come to do, which is to set us free. In Mark's account, Jesus rails against this type of legalism. When he talks to the Pharisees, there he accuses them in Mark 7, verse 8. He says, you leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of man. And that's what's happening right here in our text. It's legalism on full display. Well, that leads to the second trait of toxic religion that Jesus has come to free us from in this text And that's toxic religion thrives in a culture of fear and intimidation. See, these religious leaders were pulling rank on the man who had no standing, this man who had been healed. At that time, everything revolved around the religious leaders. It's a lot like 
different than today. It's not like everything's revolving around the pastors. But back then, if you were a religious leader, you had a lot of power. You had a lot of influence. You had been educated more than everyone else. And so there was a lot of fear because they had the power to cast you out of the temple so you couldn't worship God. They had the power to do things. Uh, I mean, you can come and go here. I I have no power to tell you (laughs) whether or not you can worship here. But they had the power to do that. And so the man, he feels this fear. He feels this intimidation. So he, he deflects the blame for breaking the rules. They said, who, who told you to do this? Look what he says in verse 11. But he answered them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. Well, now the religious leaders have a bigger fish to fry. They want to know who is going around telling someone they could break what they thought was God's law, but was really their law. So they asked him in verse 12, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? And amazingly, the man doesn't even know who it is. He didn't even know that Jesus healed him. He just knew someone made him better. So John tells us in verse 13, now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn and there was a great crowd in that place. Jesus had healed him, but this man didn't even catch his name. Well, in contrast to this fear and intimidation, this culture of the religious leaders, Jesus finds the man and he lovingly speaks the truth to him. He's inviting him to start in a new direction in life. So look at verse 14 or listen to it. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, You are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. We've seen throughout John's gospel that Jesus is more concerned about our deepest need than our current most pressing need. He's concerned about our souls. He's concerned about eternity. And that principle is true here as well. He doesn't want the man to think that everything is good now that his body has been made well. That his life is in the right direction because his physical body has been healed. He addresses the man's spiritual condition. He tells him to sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to him. And it begs the question, well, what what could be worse than paralysis? What could be worse than what he's been dealing with for 38 years Well, the thing that is worse than paralysis or being lame or blind or any difficult trial in this life is an eternity separated from the living God, living eternally apart from God. You see, a physical healing alone, if not accompanied by a new birth in Christ, will eventually lead to something far worse than any kind of physical issue that you are dealing with right now. If you don't have a remedy for your sin, you will be separated from God forever. And that is where Jesus provides the only solution. He is inviting the man, really commanding the man. He's inviting us today by implication to repent and turn from our sins. To go and sin no more. Not that he would never sin again. That would be impossible this side of heaven. But that he would leave his life of sin. 
Friends, you and I cannot obey this command to sin no more apart from Jesus. We need to trust in him who knew no sin that we might become the righteousness of God. The only way we can do that is by trusting in the Lord Jesus. So what's interesting about this story is we don't know if this man believed in Jesus that day. In all the other healings, we get this sense of someone believing in Jesus. Not in this story. We don't know what happened to the man. John doesn't tell us. But today, Jesus is calling us, just like he was calling that man, to sin no more. So that means if you don't know Jesus this morning, God is calling you to sin no more, to turn from your life of sin and turn to Christ. If you haven't done that yet, I would invite you to do that even today, even now. Embrace Jesus as Lord, the one who died so that you could live, the one who was raised from the dead so that you might have life. You can do that even today if God is working in your heart that way. But for most of us, this command to sin no more is also relevant for those of us who know and love Jesus Christ. Because there may be someone who is in this room who is just uh, harboring some secret sin. There may be something that you're not willing to tell anybody about. You're justifying, well, God is gracious. He's going to forgive me of that. I don't need to bring that into the light. It's actually kind of enjoyable. You're presuming on God's grace. Today, God is calling you to also, Christian, sin no more. Not that you will never sin again, but that you would turn from whatever sin that it is and turn to Christ. What does that look like? Well, it means that you're living a life seeking to obey the master, the Lord Jesus You're living a life that's full of repentance, that daily when you do sin, because you will, you repent and turn from it so that you might keep short accounts with God. It means that you're relying on the strength that the Holy Spirit has given you to live the Christian life in his strength and his power. And when you fail, you ask for his forgiveness. And all the while knowing that your future is secure, you are secure in Christ because of what he's done. It's not legalism. It's not doing something, thinking we can earn his favor. It's knowing that he's already done the work. He's called us to sin no more. So what is it for you today? Is it a pattern of gossip, of talking about other people? Is it something like lust or greed or pride or covening or envy? Whatever it is, there's, there's countless things that we can be struggling with. Hear Jesus calling to you today through his word, sin no more. Sin no more. Well, now we come to the third and final trait of toxic religion in verses 10 to 18, and it's this. It's not honoring Jesus as Lord. We see this lack of honor from the man who is healed and from the religious leaders You see, the man who is healed, once he learns of Jesus' identity, we don't hear anything about him believing in Jesus. We don't hear anything about him worshiping and bowing down to the Lord. Instead, we just hear him going and telling the religious leaders Jesus' identity. Potentially out of fear, we don't know. Look at verse 15. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. 
Well, this only led to the religious leaders' increased anger at Jesus. Look at verse 16. And this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Listen to how Jesus answers. My father is working until now, and I am working. So not only was he breaking the Sabbath, now the Jews are really enraged. Because even the rabbis at that time realized God was always working. He wasn't breaking the Sabbath because he had to uphold the universe and do these type of things. So what Jesus is saying is just as God was always working and not violating the Sabbath, so I am always working. And they got it. They got that Jesus was saying, I am equal to God. And that's what they said in verse 18. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. And the great tragedy of this story is that the religious leaders didn't stop to consider, could this be true? They already had their mind made up. They had a paradigm in their mind of who God was and who Jesus was. But they never considered, was he really equal with God? If they had done that, they would have realized that Jesus was, in fact, Lord of the Sabbath. And he could rightly interpret the entire law, much better than they could. And they failed to see that they were in the presence of the lawgiver because they were so focused on the law itself, which ironically pointed to this one who was the lawgiver, to Jesus Christ himself. Well, friends, this is the core of toxic religion. When you peel back the layers, you realize that it's really not about honoring Jesus when you're in a toxic religious environment. It's about something else. It's about protecting a religious tradition. It's, It's about appearances. It's about elevating a certain leader or leaders. It's about obeying certain rules. But when push comes to shove, it's not about honoring Jesus. And as you think about your journey of faith, I wonder if you have noticed any of these traits of toxic religion in your past. I wonder, you know, there's a lot of reasons why people are leaving the church today. But I think a lot of the reason is because of this, because they've seen toxic religion in churches. They've seen legalism, and they want no part of it. If that's what God's like, I I don't want to be around that. They've seen and been in a culture of fear and intimidation with religious leaders, and they don't want any part of that. Or they've been in an environment where Jesus really wasn't honored. He really wasn't preached. He really wasn't talked about as he is And so they don't know Jesus because he was never honored in that community. Well, Jesus has come to rescue us from toxic religion, that we might have abundant life in his name, that we may no longer live in guilt and shame and fear and feeling like when we mess up, he's going to slap us. Jesus has come that we might have life. Be reminded today that Jesus hates this type of toxic religion we see in this text. He's come to rescue us from it. And he's always working to bring people to himself, to know him as he is. And I hope you know that our goal here at Hope Fellowship is that we have an environment 
where you can breathe gospel air. What does that mean? That means this is an environment where we want Jesus Christ honored as Lord, where we want to worship him as he is revealed in Scripture. It's a place where you can be not okay and still be here. You're, you're loved. You're accepted. We worship the Lord Jesus because it's not about us and what we are doing, but it's about him and what he has done. So if you're new to hope, we're glad you're here. If you're at hope, I hope that's what you're about because that's what we're about here at hope. Well, as we close, this story shows us that nothing can stop Jesus from doing God's work. He is equal with God the Father. He's equal with God the Holy Spirit. And they are all working together to accomplish their mission, to glorify themselves and rescue people and bring them into the kingdom. We've seen that Jesus is full of compassion for helpless sinners, which we all were at some point until Jesus rescued us. He rescues us from toxic religion and he offers us a relationship with him the God of all things, creator of the world, savior of the world. We can have a relationship with him. So don't be like the religious leaders who missed it when it came to Jesus. Don't settle for faulty religious traditions when you think about walking with God. Jesus has come to give us life in his name. So embrace that life today. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we are grateful for passages like these where we see the heart of Jesus on full display, when we see his compassion for the least of these. Lord, we don't deserve your grace, but you found us. You searched for us and you found us. And Lord, there may be one today who is still not sure who you are, I pray today they would surrender their lives to you. But Lord, for the rest of us, I pray that we might embrace uh, this gospel air, that we might embrace who you are, Jesus, that we might live lives that honor you in our holiness and in our lives, but, but, it, but are reliant upon you for everything. You have done the work, and we worship you for it. So we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.